I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. When uh, Nikki and Helen approached me and said, do you want to do a digital essay? They didn't really know what a digital essay was, and I certainly didn't know what a digital essay was. Uh, I did, however, have a literary essay that I wanted to write. And like literary essays, I think, are an unusual form because they're not, strictly speaking, close textual criticism uh, they can kind of be anything uh, but they take their inspiration largely from pre-existing literature and fire off in they take it for a walk really they take a walk through and out from a text and in my reading partly in connection with researching uh, this REM part of, of paper uh, over there that's uh, now a novel um, I had read I'd had a kind of coincidental reading experience, I suppose, uh, uh, in which I'd been reading Paul Fussell's book, The Great War and Modern Memory. And, uh, you know, he'd been very much putting forward this theory, which I think holds a lot of water, that the juxtaposition between the, you know, armies going off to the First World War in August 1914 in, in full imperial splendor, dulce decorum est pro patria mori, on horseback, cuirasses flashing, bugles tootling, and we'll all be home by Christmas, and the, the ensuing uh, kind of gotterdammerung of the trenches, particularly on the Western Front, that in that ironic juxtaposition lay the entire... Uh, ironic consciousness of the 20th century that in a way kind of what we think of as irony a kind of pervasive culture of saying one thing and meaning another happened there that happened and, and you know he, he referred then to a whole you know it's, it's largely the great war in modern memory if you're familiar with it you'll know this it's largely a fairly close textual analysis of the first war writers particularly the first war English writers um, but he spirals off from this into a discussion of other kind of very salient examples of this kind of ironic consciousness. And one of them is from Joseph Heller's Catch-22, and in particular the, uh, the kind of leitmotif of, of Snowden's womb, if you can remember, I'm sure most of you read Catch-22, the kind of terrible scene in, in the plane over Bologna in the, the B-22 bomber when Yasserian, the protagonist, 
uh, tries to staunch the bleeding in a, in a young uh, flyer who's been hit by flak in the plane, and, and he thinks he's found and patched up the ostensible wound uh, when he sees blood coming from under the boy's flak jacket and opens it up, and, and the boy has been disemboweled by the piece of flak, and what he's seen is, in fact, only the entry wound, not the exit wound. Uh, and at the same time, I was reading um, Michael Hoffman's new translation of Kafka's Metamorphosis and Other Tales. And I think Hoffman is a very interesting Kafka translator, but then I only really have translation to go on, uh, being a uh, pretty much a miserable monoglot, except for a bit of, of French. And, and all sorts of things were happening around. I, I was reading it uh, in order to... The Folio Society were bringing out their own kind of fancy hand-tooled leather edition uh, to sit on people's shelves. Um, I'm itching to say unread, but I'm not going to say it. Um, and Hoffman had a very good prefatory essay that, 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 anyway, that made me feel very uncomfortable about the introduction I was writing as, as a non-German reader. But when I was reading Kafka's story, which I really wasn't that familiar with, I must have read it years ago, but it hadn't stayed in my mind, a country doctor, there is a scene that seemed very tightly congruent with the Snowden episode in Catch-22. There's a, a scene involving a, a young patient with a kind of ghastly wound in his flank that, that the eponymous country doctor only latterly discovers in the course of his examination. So I wondered, you know, I then started... This was, these, these were really the only elements I had, these two instances of a wound. I was familiar with the fact that Kafka had, had written a country doctor during the First War. So I thought, well, there's something going on here, these two wounds. There's something going on with these wounds. Uh, and that's all I had, really, for an essay. And, and like all... Uh, my conception of a literary essay is not that you start knowing everything, but that you start knowing very little but having some, these two things that in some way spark together, these two kind of, uh, you know, if you like, kind of intellectual or aesthetic artefacts that seem to have some kind of valency taken together. So when Nikki and Helen approached me, I wasn't really thinking in particular about the medium in which I would investigate it. I thought I would just, you know, take a line for a walk across a page in the conventional way that a writer does. But when they dangled this tantalising project of... Um, you know, paying me enough money to indulge writing an essay, which is frankly not something uh, that a writer gets offered in this day and age very much at all. Uh, I didn't question them too closely about what they... Well, we, we had an initial meeting where I think we discovered that none of us really knew what a digital literary essay would be like. Uh, and then we just kind of ploughed on with it. So that's, that's the genesis of the idea... Uh, and, and maybe we'll start to, to discuss the, the rubric we, we then devised. I mean, given that you wrote the essay in Medias Reis when the whole thing was already whirling along, rather like sort of Howl's Moving Castle, did, you, did it change the way in which you wrote that essay as different pieces of material, for example, from Brunel University, started to appear, different archival documents and so on? Well... My initial take on, on the whole thing was, I mean, I, and I think just looking at the audience, I would say that the large majority of people here are digital migrants rather than digital natives. 
uh, unless you happen to be um, in some sort of strange coma and kind of woke up in... in I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody who was kind of uh, reading uh, working and working and thinking before uh, high-speed broadband is, is a digital native uh, because our conception and our way of thinking about texts and pictures and sounds, uh, recorded sound and uh, something we quaintly call full-motion video, though presumably that's not used as an expression anymore, film... Uh, is formed by other media. Uh, and so I'm very much a digital migrant, and I um, don't think in, in terms of uh, digital... either digital content as a user or, or as digital content as a producer. So the whole experience of working on this essay was pretty novel for me and my initial conception of how to go around it was frankly to rather ignore the, the digital component altogether and just write something uh, and then see what kinds of bangs and whistles we could hang off the sides of it. Very quick, quickly because of the speed with which we were working on this it became clear that that would not do uh, and that there would be a feedback loop implied by essentially researching material that I might have researched in a different way, uh, researching material that would itself become a component in the essay and be accessible to the you know, reader, viewer, listener to the essay, uh, and that my research would take on a very, very different and more public character, that I would have to, for example, do something which I largely loathe doing, which is talk to people um, rather than at them, uh, and uh, that I would have to kind of go out and about in the world instead of sitting in my little room. Uh, and so that became a very, very different sort of experience, working collaboratively, uh, accessing material that, you know, to be frank, I, wouldn't, I don't think I would have thought as visually about the subject which I think is particularly apt to Kafka as a writer, who's a highly visual writer and very, very much concerned with movement and appearance. If I hadn't been working with Ollie Brock on uh, looking at archive material, working with Ian on, on filming various sorts of, of video, and dealing with the whole vexed question of translation with the help of uh, Amanda Hopkinson at, at the UEA at the British Centre for Literary Translation, who actually coordinated a translation event where we had some very eminent Kafka translators discussing some of the particular problems involved in translating Kafka. I mean, you couldn't really, as an isolated writer, you wouldn't be able to do that. You wouldn't say, well, I have a real problem in understanding. For example, one of the things that really vexed me was why people kept saying how funny they found Kafka. Uh, I, I have real difficulties in, in the, you know, finding Kafka a rich source of belly laughs and I largely convened the translator event to see if I could get people of the kind of status of, um, of Joyce Crick and, and uh, to, to tell me whether Kafka was funny since presumably they, they know. So things like that very, very rapidly developed a kind of feedback loop into my thinking about how I was taking this line for a walk across the text. The more creative content that came in through 
uh, Brunel University. And it really, if you look at the essay, it's really kind of, some of it's pretty wild and diverse and strange. We've got physicists who've built kind of cosmological wound models and we've got performance artists that have got a kind of restaging of a scene from Parsifal. We've got all kinds of stuff and some fantastic, as it were, proper digital stuff, stuff generated by people who work in digital arts. Um, one of whom uh, said to me, you know, why didn't you do the whole thing in the digital world? Why didn't you create... And, and I think that runs up a kind of against something we'll hopefully discuss a bit more, because when she said this to me, i.e., why wasn't it in such a kind of wholly virtualized experience, the, the essay, rather than essentially, at the end of the day, Brian, still being a text with things dangling <laughs> off it. Um, I had to kind of really think about that one. I, I hope we can discuss it. Maybe you'll have some input to this. I personally think it's very, very difficult to present a cogent argument in that way. I can't quite see how it would happen. I mean, this person showed me um, how, you know, I could make a tiny little three-dimensional um, James May from, top, from uh, top Gear appear out of the top of my mobile phone. Uh, yeah, but I wasn't quite convinced he'd be able to explain to me why I'd found this strange congruence between <laughs> Joseph Heller and Franz Kafka. Uh, so, you know, I, I couldn't quite think my way around how something which always had to conform to London Review of Books uh, intellectual sta and editorial standards, which, as I'm sure all of you as regular readers of the LRB will know, are not low, uh, how it would be possible to convey material of that kind through those kind of media, but maybe we'll, I'm hoping that some people are going to have some ideas on that. Yeah. Thank you, Bill, very much. I'd just like to go over to Dan at this point. I mean, Dan, as a professional digital publisher, compared to the three of us, and leaving politeness to Will yeah. and the LRB aside, uh, would you just tell us what you think of the result? Well, I'd start by saying that as a, a professional that I know as much about this landscape as anyone else and anyone who would deign to be termed an expert would be misleading you straight away because I think we're at a stage now where we're exploring and what I think this essay represents is uh, a really timely and interesting intervention which has been led by an author um, because often in publishing world anyway, you know, we're grappling with the digital landscape, we're being told that our industry is being disrupted and that we're going to have to completely change the internal mechanisms of what we're doing to cope. But so often the writer is left out of this debate and left out of the conversation that's going on, often between the same people at intervals, talking about the same things again, and we reset the conversation. So for, for, for me it's exciting because I also think it, it, you know, there are people who practice digital literature and have been doing so for decades, writers who operate in an interactive space who can code as well as write and for them I think uh, you might argue that they deliberately keep themselves on the periphery of the mainstream and that now actually the mainstream starting to move towards them and I think with what Will's doing here is that this is a really excellent example of some of a mainstream author or a literary writer you know bringing bringing himself into this space and seeing what happens literally into the space um, and, it, you know, if I talk about how, I mean, 
the way I approached the site, to be honest, was for a start, I read the short story, Kafka's short story. The first thing I did was Google it. I read a really bad translation on a PDF. I then went and looked to read the vintage edition, which we publish. Um, I then read the essay. I then looked, I looked at the site. I'd had a quick cursory glance at the site. I thought it was really elegantly executed. I liked the idea of the network of the content. It looked like it was engaging with the right type of thinking. But I read the essay straight through without looking at the extra bells and whistles. Um, and then you go, but, but what is interesting about the process is you go back and you go back and you start to, you know, you delve further into, you know, the processes by which these different elements came about, the responses from the different people. And then you see how actually what's happening is you, you're evolving a relationship with the essay through the disparate means by which people have interpreted the story. And that's where it's interesting, really interesting. And, it, and it, it, it's triggered me thinking a lot about the role of modernism and what modernism, you know, why people, whether modernism can help explain and somehow construct meaningful narrative in the digital landscape. Because in Umbrella, Will refers to this, the binary blizzard that's blowing through humanity's consciousness. And for me, that bears a relationship with the technological upheaval, which was then you know, instrumental in killing millions of people in the First World War and the response that modernism made in the early 20th century then to a technological upheaval. Now it's not so overtly vicious, and yet the way we interact as people online, our consciousness, our social relationships, are being completely, you know, swept up, turned around. And, you know, the polite way you say it, some people call it digital disruption, as if, you know, you know someone's fallen under the train on your way to work but actually it's a kind of destruction and yet with it comes the springs of a new type of creativity as well and so I think and I don't think it's a coincidence either that this essay engages with the ideas of the association of ideas which have congruity with each other but you know which not necessarily you know you just sort of make the connections and it it goes back to Eliot I can connect nothing with nothing and last year, one of the outstanding pieces of digital publishing was The Wasteland. You know, Faber went back to The Wasteland. And I, you, you sort of think, well, they did that for several reasons, one of which is it's their crowning piece of copyright. And I think that says a lot about copyright. But also because... But, they, but they've also... What they did there in an application is they, they sort of brought in the chaos of these disparate elements and sort of packaged it together. And I think it's fascinating that the first sort of serious foray which really sparked a lot of people's thinking about digital literature was this classic modernist text. So I've just been turning these ideas over and I think it is very interesting. I mean, you could argue the internet is, you know, it's postmodern, it's parody, it's pastiche, it's complete chaos. But I wonder whether to make things meaningful, whether we are reaching back now. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think if you think about the great modernist texts like Ulysses, The Man Without Qualities, Remembrance of Things Past, and indeed now uh, Will's uh, novel, they, are, they invite a sort of disparate, um, fragmentary moving about. I mean, one's tempted in a text without paragraphs to dip in and out, which is perhaps a quite a digital behaviour. Before I ask Will about that, I'd like to turn to Helen. And Helen, I know you have some quite strong views about this question of whether or not this dipping in and out, this interruptive, fragmentary material that is scattered through what is a linear text, uh, whether this is actually disruptive or whether or not there is another way of looking at that. Yes, I have some very strong opinions on that. 
Um, first of all, the site is completely contained. If you read the essay, you may feel as if everything is limitless that's related to it, but it isn't. There are no links out of the essay into the wider web. So that's an illusion. It's very tightly contained. Secondly, I'd like to consider whether or not this is an illustrated essay, and in my view is not an illustrated essay. It's an essay that has been written whilst the rest of the content that's linked to it was being created. So it's all happened in parallel. We haven't taken a text and then tried to add things directly to it, things that relate directly to specific lines, specific words of wills. And in that actually came one of the big shifts in my thinking, because initially I was very clear that every piece of content that I imagined we would link into the imaginary text that Will would deliver would link specifically to a sentence or to specific words, that there would be a very direct link between the, the content and the text, and that when the site functioned, you should never lose your eyeline with the sentence at which you were, at which you were at, sorry, um, when you looked at the piece of associated content, so that you were always connected into the essay at the point you, you were looking at the additional material. But actually, when it came to it, almost all of the content, and this is really what's interesting about this particular project, all of the content is contextual. None of it is an, an illustration of a point. And that could be quite different in a different piece of writing for a different purpose, a different piece of work. But in this, I think it's what gives it a real, its real strength. So whether or not you read the essay all the way through and then go and look at the related content, or you start out tempted by the audio and the video and the creative elements, and you could look at those first, and that draws you in, or whether you're very methodical and read the bit of text and then look at the content, or read the next bit of the text and look at the content, however you approach it, your view of what Will has written, the way you interpret what Will has written, is going to change if you've seen a particular piece of content before you read that. And alternatively, if you read the essay first and then look at the piece of content, your view of that piece of content is going to be altered by the fact that you have read Will's essay first. So everybody's experience of, of this digital essay is going to be different. And what I'm hoping is that if you come to it expecting an immersive reading experience that you can get that from the essay and then you'll be tempted to perhaps look at some dance that you wouldn't normally look at or listen to some music that isn't really your thing or if you are somebody who is very audio very oral and not you know slightly intimidated by an enormous block of text that you'll get tempted in to the text through through a slightly more accessible medium or if you're very visual um, you can actually follow Will through his um, research and you can gain, or you can ask yourself the question, I can see Will in Prague, I can hear Will talking to a physicist about black holes and the impact that that might have had on Kafka. How did these things affect Will and what he wrote? And there's no real answer to that. And that is why this is an intriguing piece of work. There is no real answer. Everybody's answer will be different. And that makes it a fantastic project, in my view.
Will, would you uh, respond to that and also to Dan's view that this is that the internet is really a modernist exercise? Well, I, I think that, that Dan's saying something very interesting, and it seems to me that, that the, the, without getting too bogged down in this, that the problem, as I see it, we're, we're you know we're in you know what what Marx described as the interregnum between two epochs, we, and we don't know what the emergent narrative forms are going to be uh, on the web yet. People have been, as Dan said, people have been writing hypertext things since hypertext was developed in what, the early 80s? Yeah. I mean, it's been, yeah. you know, and people have been trying to find in a way the kind of holy grail of a new narrative medium that will provide an immersive experience that uses all of the, the uh, you know, the things that, the, the experiences, the, the, the multimedia experiences that can be delivered by the web, and it hasn't been found yet. And uh, I think what Dan's right about is that it's not going to come from postmodernism, and it can't come from postmodernism. And the reason it can't come from postmodernism is exactly what you say. Postmodernism is inherently second order. It can only be pastiche, uh, and ultimately it can't, in and of itself, generate its own new classicism. So I think it's, again, not without accident that I chose to write about a modernist writer, uh, and not without accident that at least some elements of high modernism seem to be replicated in possible ways of approaching a new narrative, Im uh, immersive narrative form that's web-based. The thing, and I totally accept what Helen said about, you know, it, it, about it not being illustrated per se. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it was exigency that placed us in that position. It was no element of design or saying, oh, no, we don't want it to be illustrative that way. Frankly, if it could have been illustrative, we would have done it no, that no, way. No, no, no. It was never going to be decorative. No, not no, decorative. No, no. But what I'm saying is if we could have pinpointed and targeted and we had the money and the time especially to source exactly the sorts of media, additional media that we wanted, we probably would. The interesting thing, and this is where the kind of link with Brunel came in and the Brunel staff and students who contributed, was what I suppose I'd hoped for was another tier to this contextualization, which was a feedback loop that would occur when uh, content that had derived from my initial pitch to content providers. So I gave them the same kind of spiel I've given you this evening, but with a bit more lengthier and a few bits of prose slung in, that their creative response to my uh, sense of creative quickening around these ideas would then feed back into my text as well. And it's not, it's not their fault that we simply didn't have time for that additional tier. And how I would have seen it in the essay is probably through further cascading footnotes, essentially. So I would have seen it as a textual working out, because I'm a text worker. But I think that would have possibly pushed it further towards what Dan is describing. And I think that the other thing that um, would push it in, in that direction more readily, or rather would push it in another direction where I can see, yet still in coate, where things like this might become if not paradigmatic, that's a little bit too grand, but it might become a kind of proto-form of something people will develop. And this only really occurred to me today when I was kind of coming over here, which is, who is going to not just 
look at these things or read them or go off and look at the, the video that Ian and I made in, in Prague or listen to, you know, just this afternoon, rather excitingly, we've got Matthew <laughs> Herbert, the composer's contribution to the site, which is, and he's the overall kind of sound consultant for the space, and he's done something, I think, really pretty exciting. And I'm, I'm not somebody who easily gets excited, but uh, I'm very much looking forward. I haven't even had time to look at what he's done, uh, but I think it'll be good. And uh, we've got, we had other original music composed for it by Peter Weigold at Brunel, who's a distinguished contemporary composer. So we've got music's catered to. But what I think is, it occurred to me is, what's, what is the kind of cultural and intellectual landscape going to be like in which people use this as a resource? That's the interesting thing, because the kiddies are going to start using stuff like this as a primary resource. And that, I think, is what's going to really make it gel as a way of, of presenting ideas. It's, gonna, it's, it's not going to be us old folk um, making this stuff. It's going to be the way that young users start to demand that it conform to their own paradigms of how to learn. And, of course, a big worry, for, particularly for pedagogues of uh, my stroke, our generation, is what the web is doing to their attention span so maybe this is something web-based that will expand rather than contract attention span uh, yes i mean i think this is really the, perhaps the core question because obviously i think certainly for anybody who's worked at the london review of books who's perhaps written for it and who has understood what it tries to do the question of attention is absolutely central and although people can have a different view of this and we haven't time to explore it in depth, it is quite clear that if you introduce audio and visual material, archive pictures and so on and so forth, some of it very long. I mean, some of these interventions are an hour, an hour and a half long. Well, the idea that you can read a text and keep the thread of it while having gone off to a seminar in the City of London and come back again, or alternatively read an essay nested within an essay, there really are questions about this about whether this is an advance or whether this is a step backwards. And I want to ask a question rather more specifically about this. I mean, when we read, whether we read you know, non-fiction, prose or fiction, we are blind and deaf. When you read a book, we see nothing with our eyes, we hear nothing with our ears. We have to imagine it in our heads. What happens, therefore, if in a text, let us say you're reading a poem by John Donne, in which he compares a man to a pair of compasses, a famous image that Samuel Johnson took exception to in the 18th century as altogether too extravagant. Supposing you're reading that poem, and before you read that line, you see a picture of a pair of compasses, or you see a surreal realisation of a man envisaged as a pair of compasses, and then you read the image. What does this do to your cognitive process? Is it actually weakening something that goes on in the brain. I don't think it's exceptional or new, or we don't need to get onto it, but I think that the setting of words to music has already posed this question. But uh, I'd like to hear what you think about this. And Dan, can, could you speak to that? Well, I think reading has this, you know, it's a hallucinatory process. Um, and I just, I've just, I'm sort of thinking back as well to, to pick up Will's point around, you know, the ki the kids and a hypertext and the the big, I think what we can't ignore is people who operate with words, 
um, is the evolution in storytelling that has taken place in the gaming world. Um, and I think a world where interactivity, you know, interactivity and, and forming a story um, is dependent on the player and the user. And it, it goes, you know, this goes back to the idea of death of the author and to what extent now, um, you know, authors are prepared to allow a level of interactivity and to sort of let go of something in which is formed more on the reader. And I think, I think as much as, you know, as reading has an amazing cognitive, you know, function and is extremely good for us, um, I would, I'd never talk down to anyone who didn't necessarily read but put themselves into imaginary worlds just because we weren't quite as conversant in them. Um, so I, would, I wouldn't talk down to someone who's, you know, really into playing, um, you know, Grand Theft Auto even, or, or one of these sort of sandbox games where, where there is an active level of imaginative creation going on, even though they're being guided by visual triggers that they're seeing and the sounds and so on. And, and where this is interesting now, I think, is where publishing is like, oh, games, yeah, games, we should, you know, we should do something with games, right? And it, but it's that intersection, it's where, where do the two touch is quite interesting. And everyone talks to us, I, you talk, start talking about this now, everyone talks about those gaming books from the 80s, the fighting fantasy, you know, go to page 30. Every, everyone mentions that when you start talking about. But there are companies, there are companies that I've started working with, like Fail Better Games, who do interactive branching text narratives where the where the reader and the writer in conspiracy with one another are creating a world and i just wonder i think now that that's an area for exploration i would i would never dismiss gaming but i also don't think necessarily by default games is somewhere where publishers should go wholesale but i think we can now flirt with games in a way that we haven't done before and make it really meaningful and it'll be interesting to see you know as games i think become more storytelling based which I think some of them have like some of them go straight a game like LA Noir is very much a genre it's basically you know uh, James Elroy and Elmore Leonard you know Raymond Chandler in gaming form I think it's just interesting now how we respond back as uh, you know in, as the publishing industry and how writers might actually start to think you know I might start to experiment in that area and where you know where the boundaries are and where you know and where we fail I guess doing that but don't you think that applies mainly to fiction, though, rather than the essay form or literary essay, that kind of text? Yeah, it, yeah, it does. It does. It, it does. But I guess if you, you know, it's Werner Herzog's point about documentary that all documentary is essentially fiction as well. So I guess you know. But I think overtly, it's going to work more in fiction than non-fiction. But I think this is. I think you know. It's just. It's a question of text and and you know what Nikki was saying about how, what that triggers in your mind. And I, I, my uneasiness around gaming paradigms uh, is both is a conceptual uneasiness because I'm just not convinced that the level of interaction that the game the gamer is involved in. Uh, allows for the kind of level of attention that is required for the cognitive act of reading. Uh, in fact, I, I see and I unfortunately have the opportunity to observe a lot of gaming <laughs> due to having far too many sons. And I have the opportunity to see, and it's interesting that what a large number, proportion of gamers are male, 
and I have the opportunity to see how closely it relates to the prompt for making the choices is essentially adrenalized at some level. And that is not what we are seeking to, to use as the propulsive element uh, in narrative formation or immersion for the kind of work that we want to present. I'd just like to say, except in Wagner. Yes, well, you might get a kind of ring game, I suppose. And the other... So I, I, I somewhat question that. I mean, I, I... But I think the counterexample, Dan, will be, you know, somebody's going to have to do it. Somebody is going to have to construct something that looks like a sandbox game uh, or looks even like a kind of first-person shooter game, but which it offers the gamer the experience of constructing an extremely complex intellectual argument. <laughs> and then let's see if anybody plays it. <laughs> if, if they're queuing round the corner a kind of, you know, blockbuster to pick it up on the morning it's issued. Just the last question to you before we go to the audience, Will. How do you feel about the death of the author in a sort of collaborative, creative loving? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, Dan touched on that as well. And I think that is, the, in a way, the more interesting mm. aspect of this and the more exciting aspect to me. Uh, and, and I think that that's where I would seek to, to change the medium more than by offering people you know, the classic idea of what hypertext was, which is, hey, kids, you're going to generate your own story, you know. Mm. I don't, you know, I'm somewhat... I Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I think if, kid, if the kids want to generate their own story, then they should offer some text of their own. That's what the really interesting uh, thing is going to be. And it seems to me that you know, if, again, if this is a proto-form of anything, the element of collaboration is where it will change. If we'd had more time and we'd had more of an uh, inbuilt and successive feedback loops, mm -hmm. then some of these 70-odd people that were involved in, in the digital essay would come to be more powerful in the collective authoring of it than the person who'd ostensibly got it going. So that, I think, is very interesting moving forward and is a possible counter to some of the attention span difficulties that I witness among my own children. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, let's go to the audience. Thank you very much indeed. This is intriguing. Um, my question is primarily for Will, but I, th I think for all. Um, in what ways can you envisage 
using the array of digital techniques and approaches to make Umbrella accessible to those who will find the text impenetrable. Well, I mean, it rather begs the question if you tried to read it yourself. And did you, did you, you're enjoying it? Well, you're the ideal reader then. I'm not really, I'm not really interested in anybody else. I mean, I think, I think that is one of the things that, you know, one of the kind of paradoxes of, of what we do as writers is that the ideal reader is a tautology. You know, the ideal reader is the reader who ideally wants to read it. And the problem with thinking about even this new emergent medium of kind of, uh, 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 of kind of as it were, web essay writing or even web fiction writing of some form or another is that ultimately the ideal reader or the ideal consumer for that has to be a tautology as well. It has to be the person who's involved in it. I mean, I say that as, as somebody... I don't think anybody's serious as a writer who consciously tries to change either the medium or the message in order to gain a wider readership. I, I, that's just not what we're about. And I suppose one of the kind of limiting constraints on this project, as against many web-based projects, is that I think that's how we all felt about this as well. Uh, and I think that there were some eyebrows raised at the BBC, for example, when we submitted the text because they hadn't quite expected that many words to be involved <laughs> in, a, in an essay. There was some uh, confusion about that, but they just had to lump it. Uh, can I pick, I, I'd pick up on that because I think working at a publisher, if someone had bought this book in manuscript form and said, you know, we'd really like to do something digital with this, um, and it wasn't coming from Will, you know, you just... You, I personally would have turned around and said, we're not doing anything digital with this. Because I think, having read the book, um, trying, getting in there and trying to pull out the strands and provide the explanations completely destroys, I think, what, what the book is... Well, I don't want to speak for what it's... What I feel it's trying to achieve, I think it would destroy, destroy that. And, um, and I, th I think, you know, the challenge in this time is to know when to leave alone as much as when to see opportunities. I mean, I'm working on a, a project for Clockwork Orange, which I told Will about, and he reacted in a very visceral manner. <laughs> um, that wasn't visceral, Dad. That's well, just, you know... Well, literally visceral. <laughs> I said, I said, I you say, see, you said it made you feel sick. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, oh, nauseous, right. nauseous. <laughs> nauseous. But, and, I, and I think that reaction is completely legitimate. Um, because one of the things we're doing for that, for example, is we're, we're going to gloss the NADSAT, you know, the invented language. But what we're going to do at the beginning is say, you probably don't want to turn this on, but you can. Because we want to try and cleave true to what Burgess, I think, was trying to achieve as well. But at the same time, we're providing commentaries and loads of archive that he wrote, articles and other stuff to come around it, to try, for students especially, to give them something which we think would be definitive... Mm. And which the, and which would unlock it for people as well, but yeah, but know, that's that's the, yeah, that it's is interesting. Different. You you say it, it becomes essentially a curatorial project, mm. as with Faber's Wasteland. Yeah, and that's like it's fine, Dan. You can do it. I'm not going to not going to puke. I think what's more, what I'd like to hear you talk about is, for example, what you did with Nick Cave's mm. Bunny Monroe, which was mm. a, you know that text came into you. Yeah. And you saw a potential for adding, you yeah. know, 
buzzers and whistles to that. And what was yeah. your thinking there? Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you did with that. So, so that was that was released as an, an iPhone app three years ago now, and it feels like ancient history. But <laughs> in the context of when it came out, I mean, there was a company called Enhanced Editions, um, which had a very close relationship with Canongate, where I was working at the time. And, and yeah, and actually, it, the evolution of that book's interesting because it was originally came into us as a script and, and Nick had asked Jamie, who runs Canongate, you know, I might turn this into a novel, what do you think? The answer was yes. And at the time, the technology was merging. Ebooks were, you know, under 5% of the market. They're now more like 20%. Um, you couldn't, you know, the facility that your usual e-reader at the time could could provide you were really limited whereas here was the opportunity where we could have the text we could synchronize the audiobook to the text and actually the audiobook um, was an amazing feat in itself because he composed music for it it had a lot of it had a 3d um, it had 3d audio by Arab acoustics which are an engineering firm in the US so the, the USP was you can flip, you know, you can get off the bus and listen to the audio. And at the time, that was that was new and that had a lot of value, I think. And he'd also filmed uh, videos of him of him reading the text as well. And the app in itself could feed news out to the users. And now that feels, you know... Right, now, hold it, hold it right there. So you have Nick Cave, <laughs> yeah. who is a film screenwriter, a, a highly dis distinguished now singer-songwriter and, mm. and musician. Uh, and a really pretty fine prose writer, and and you produce this book with him, and it seems to me more legitimate that you went. I totally agree. I too read the script first before mm. it was turned into into prose fiction. So in a way, you had the entree to it as a property in that way. How did it sell? It, well, now that I've left, and actually, <laughs> and actually the company that made that no, no longer exists, so you can't actually buy this anymore. Which I think speaks to the transience of this right. environment. So if you wanted to download it, we did. We priced it at twelve ninety nine, and you wouldn't get away with pricing anything in the app store now. Maybe it was even fourteen ninety nine because the audiobook was thirty quid. We did about five thousand on iPhone two thousand nine. This is pre iPad, mm. and that was quite a good return on investment for then. And we had a very good deal with Enhanced Editions. Mm. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. Um, but but what it did, I mean, you know, it, it, it did make money for us, but what it did was put a flag in the ground mm. for the publishing industry and go, hello, you know, these devices are now here. The possibility, I don't think you should be device-led, but you, should, you can now, I mean, the portability and, and the multimedia capabilities of these things just did introduce this possible new way forward. And, and that was, I mean, but that was the perfect project because... Because right. of Nick and because yeah. he because was... Because of the author. Yeah. Because of the writer. But Nick was kind yeah. of bemused by it all, you know. <laughs> he was like, he'd get asked oh, about it, you know, he had invented the Purcell room, I remember him. But that's the paradox of this yeah. whole thing, is that you've got the, the viable producers are not necessarily the ideal consumers. Mm. You know, so you're going to have people working in a medium. It's as if somebody had kind of... You know, it's, it's as if all early films were being made by people who never went to the cinema. <laughs> Anyway, it's the audience's time. Another question, yeah. yes. Hi, I should declare an interest. I'm Bill Thompson from the BBC, and I, I read the original application, uh, and what you've made is so completely different from that. So I really wanted to ask, Helen, at what point did you despair? 
<laughs> At what point did you think this was undoable, and what was the salvation for the for Kafka's wound? Well, as I said, it was I, it was me, whatever you say, who put in the application, and I mean, I was just sort of weaving fantasies. Um, I, I mean, I had, I was, all, I was thinking that the great thing about a digital essay would it would be truly sort of polygonal that you would be able to enter it would be a sort of like a polyhedra you would be able to enter it from any number of sides and it would be sort of cellular and modular I mean actually not very different from quite a lot of modernist fiction and so on where people wrote in paragraphs numbered paragraphs I don't know is a tractatus written in numbered paragraphs it is it's yes Dewey Okay, but you know that it would be like that, and that you would enter by it would be a bit like Stockhausen's Cyclus, which is a which is an I don't know if you've heard that it's a you know one of the great Darmstadt works where he wrote a piece of music for percussion, every possible percussion instrument, which was going to be put in a circle, and the percussionist rushes round for about forty minutes playing the, these instruments, and um, it's very spectacular. And the whole idea of this thing was it was a circular score. And you were meant to be allowed to start it at any point and then head on until you came back to where you started. That was good. However, I have a friend who actually played it for Stockhausen at the Festival Hall about 20 years ago. And uh, Stockhausen raged backstage at the interval because Ashley, who had played it, decided not to start it at the place where people usually started it, but at another place, so he took it seriously. Stockhausen was furious. He said, why have you started my score at this random place? I wanted it to start there. So this was my idea. It was going to be a kind of Stockhausen-like circular thing that you could sort of go into and come out of with different combinations. But of course, the main problem with all this is the time constraint and the money constraint. I'd like to add to that. Yes, carry on. When he put the proposal in, nobody knew what the space digital platform was or was going to be. It could have been anything at all. Uh, we didn't have a clue what it was until we went to uh, an event at the Festival Hall, not, maybe in early April, when it turned out it was um, based on WordPress and was, but was effectively there to, mainly to support video. I, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I mean, not very textual anyway. Um, and that technically the ideal microsite would be built in HTML5. Um, and that, I think, combined with the constraints of um, money and time, meant we needed to adopt what uh, Nikki termed radical pragmatism, uh, which I believe we did. Um, but if you do, and I have done this, go through the proposal very carefully um, and compare it to the things we think we've achieved, I can argue a case for almost every point. Um, the only one that's totally not there um, is the ability of the reader to feed back. And I am quite disappointed about that, but that was a space policy, I believe. Um, so, uh, yeah, we could talk about that later. Very good. We'll return to the question of cost later, because I think this is very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, more questions? Hi. Um, uh, when I was at university, my tutor uh, compared the experience of using the internet to more like a medieval experience. Uh, when scholars would have a kind of reading wheel, which they would spin round and look at the tomes, kind of like a big kind of cheese board, just kind of whizzing around and comparing between different uh, tomes. Um, and I wonder if perhaps 
the experience of, of this zipping around to different types of content is is actually kind of quite unmodernist like in the way it seems to me quite free of anxiety in the way that the modern modernism isn't and that maybe there is a lot of anxiety surrounding the experience of using the internet and that zipping around some of it expressed tonight but the actual experience of doing that is kind of light-footed and uh, unanxious well um <coughs> we need to go I don't I think the weird thing is I had a I was away in the States and a young woman I assumed it seemed it was a young woman because I do see this as very generational as you've doubtless already gathered um, sent me a proposal for a fiction app uh, that was going to kind of spawn through social media that I was going to provide the, you know, the kind of hypertext generating initial uh, content for, and then other people were going to add in their kind of Facebook photos. They were going to interact in it and add their own content to it, and it was going to generate new narratives for them. I was, first of all, reminded of... Uh, the scene in Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 where you get delivered a manuscript for a, a, a script every morning so that you can take part in the uh, serial that's broadcast on the wall-sized screens that surround you whereupon all the characters turn to you and say what do you think Will and you read your line from the script that's been provided to you um, but I also thought that this was um, really unnerving and kind of strange. And uh, if it was easy to do, in other words, if, if people wanted to start incorporating uh, aspects of their life that are digitally available into a narrative that was then fissioning throughout other readers in that way and becoming a kind of confabulation of reality, that that was to me, psychologically, fantastically difficult to the point of being really alarming and disturbing. And actually, I mean, I don't maybe other people are very blasé about this. If I'm reading a book on my iPhone, which I've only acquired about a month ago, but I do read on, and I highlight a quote, and it, says, and it offers me the option of tweeting it... <laughs> Well, what the fuck is that about, <laughs> is what I think. Because to me, what the fuck is that about? If I actually did that, that would be profoundly modernist, in my way of thinking. It would be profoundly strange uh, relocation of the reading experience and of the way I think about what it is re I'm involved in in reading in all kinds of ways. So I slightly dispute what, what you're saying, because it seems to me that it doesn't matter whether you put your, you know, you arrange Duns Scotus and the Gospels and everything on your reading wheel and you spin between them. You don't instantaneously push something on the reading wheel and then every other fucking monk throughout Western Europe <laughs> receives a kind of the quote coming onto their reading wheel. I'm not quite getting that myself. <laughs> No, I, I'm going to ask a question for the audience because Laird Barrett is here who has been doing research into this and is um, an academic professional. Um, 
he has views about Will's view of digital migrants and uh, natives, and also this generational difference, and a sceptical view of it. Laird, would you be happy to speak to that? Can we have the... Yeah. the uh, I think Saki. So for the last year or so, I've been studying uh, the Internet and Society at Oxford's Internet Institute, and I've been partly been studying the idea of digital natives and digital immigrants. And it comes from a guy who in, called Mark Prensky, who in 2001 argued that everybody born after 1980 had grown up with digital technology, and um, and they were comfortable with digital, digital technology. They were, you know, basically sophisticated with digital technology. Everybody born before were digital immigrants, um, so they didn't grow up with digital technology. They didn't know how to use it. It was, it was sort of strange and unfamiliar to them. Since 2001, there's been a lot of research done that's basically shown that actually across all age groups, there's a range of user types. So, you know, people who are old, there's some very sophisticated users, there's some basic users, uh, same with people who are very young. There's actually a large contingent of young people who are pretty unsophisticated users of digital technology, so they use digital technology in a pretty basic way. There's been a strong argument made that um, basically this idea of the digital native is something that you know some people project onto young people, partly because of an anxiety about technology. Um, it's sometimes replicated as well by advertisers because you know if, if young people think that they're great at technology, they might be more likely to buy it. Um, and so the, the, this idea that Prensky has actually backed away from now a little bit um, under the pressure from from other academics and and kind of uh, refuted the idea. So. It still sort of exists in the, in, in the popular imagination now, and, and uh, it, it sometimes has insidious um, uh, effects, um, and sometimes not so insidious effects. Um, before you get going on that, Will, can I ask Dan and Helen? Helen, you have two children. I do. Um, they're quite old. Quite old? Well, yes. I mean, they're not small they're children. They're older than you. <laughs> they're close. <laughs> nearly, yeah, very nearly. Oh, yeah. So, for example, I have a daughter... And she played that game you referred to, the one, the detective one, L.A. Noir. Yeah. L.A. Noir. Um, and she's also played Dark Rain, is that right? Heavy Rain. Heavy, Heavy Rain. rain. Yeah. I pay attention, you can tell. Um, both of which I think are much closer to the experience of film than text, but they do, that you are following a, a narrative and, and you have a, um, you do, you have to make choices and play characters. So. I felt it was much closer to film than a book, but you know, I, I could be wrong. Um, but coming to Laird's point, um, the view of my son, who is an incredible immersive game player, um, uh, to the point that it concerns me, I have to say, um, he said to me that I view uh, digital devices as tools, uh, whereas to other people they're a way of life. And that, to me, may be the fundamental difference. But I don't, I don't think that whether you're a digital immigrant or a digital migrant affects the way you read online. My personal belief is that the way you read online is based on your anticipation of what you're about to do. And generally, you will approach your computer screen or your phone or your iPad with the expectation that what you do will be short-term, will not require much attention. Um, but I wanted to change that approach with the digital essay and try as much as possible to provoke the same response to the Kafka screen as you get when you're approaching a page like this. Because it's not, I think, inherent in the person. It's more in the, the expectation and the approach to, to the device. I mean, it's, that's, I just did to be there because it's very interesting that the London Review of Books appears to be an extremely weighty magazine. 
And people often have complained that the article's much too long, much too long, terrible, can't possibly read them. And this is because they're trying to read them over breakfast. And their approach to the text over breakfast or whatever else they're doing is completely different from when they open a book. So I'm completely agreeing with Helen there. If you put essays from London Review of Books in the book, they become very short. <laughs> um, I, I think um, I can understand the, the perspective that different generations have different levels of um, understanding and you know different amounts of time that they use technology and different way that they interact with technology. And it, that it, you can't make really broad assumptions, broad sweeping statements. You can, but I mean, we all know that it is more complicated picture than that certainly just re regarding books you know it was it has I think it did surprise people with you know that the the, the received opinion is that you know it's going to be middle-aged 50 quid man who consume um, you know hardware like iPads and so on but it it, it has moved very fast for dedicated e-reading devices to to replicate the reading demographic, which is definitely female heavy, it's definitely um, middle-aged and older. Um, and how fast that has happened, I think, has surprised experts in the field. Um, and I think it alludes to the fact that, you know, when, when it suits you and you want to, you can adapt pretty fast. Um, I mean, from a personal perspective, I was born, you know, in 82, and I, I feel that I just that I was going, you know, that digital sort of happened to me, you know, rather than being a migrant into this territory, you know, that it was our generation. We just about were getting computers into schools when I was going through school. You know, when we got to university, we had to start handing in our essays as Word documents, you know. So I've, and I think this is, my perspective on all of this is not, I'm not Mr. Digital and I know everything that's going on. I've come to this area as it's developing with fresh eyes, understanding, having had a few years in the book industry and trying to make it work but I think you have to um, you have to have quite I think a, a nuanced view because it's not it, actually the game I mean one of the assumptions about gaming is that a lot of men play games but actually there's a huge number of women who play computer games as well and that's a common misconception too in terms of particularly the ones I think where there's not so much fighting that's just from my perspective I don't I, don't, I, don't, I, I completely accept what you're saying I never made a hard uh, you know, chronological distinction between who I would have classed as a digital native and a digital immigrant. I'm more interested in the point at which uh, uh, wireless broadband was freely available. I think that's more significant than the digital appliance or device. It is, it is the fact of the web. I'm not really, I'm looking at it the other way around. I'm much more concerned with the idea that people whose canonical knowledge is formed by the experience of reading come to web-based reading with that paradigm of how you assemble a canon. Mm. And that's the key distinction, it seems to me. For those of us who obtained our canonical learning in libraries and through reading books, we are accustomed and without access through extended mind to continual revision or confirmation of what our canonical knowledge is, with the expectation, for example, that in order to build up a sense of comparison between two writers, you will have to read several volumes of each writer. We approach the web differently to people who are brought up with the assumption that you can Google Plato. 
go to the Republic and find out how it relates to Aristotle's ethics, okay? You must understand the distinction between that. I don't care what your research is about. You have to understand that that is a fundamentally different way of thinking about memory, reading, and crucially, writing. When people write on screen linked via broadband, what is their opportunity? They have an opportunity to summon research at the touch of a button, to say, you can think of a myriad examples of how that might influence the way that you would operate upon a text that would in some sense vitiate or modulate the idea of emotion, let alone intellectual creation, recollected in tranquility. Even the act of writing in word processing programs, I would argue, creates an element of extended mind. It makes it no longer necessary to form sentences well, let alone paragraphs, let alone pages or books, in your mind. There is no requirement for it. And I would argue that all of this vitiates the, the ability of people to maintain long attention spans and large quantities of conceptual information and factual information in their minds. I'd, and I'd, we shall see. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to pick up on that because it reminded me we had a talk when I was uh, at Canagate. We had a, the author of Wikonomics came and spoke to the whole independent alliance in Faber's offices over here. And he, was, he came out, I can't remember his name, but he came out with what, something which I found really unnerving, which he said that he, he just didn't believe that students would be using books. They'd find everything that they did through search engines. And I think, going back to the point about the sort of benevolent Rolodex, medieval Rolodex, that's the internet, nothing that you're getting served up to you on the web is not being organized by huge corporations in some way or another. And I don't want to sound like too dystopian about it, but you can't not appreciate that Google is reading you as much as you're reading things on Google. And that has huge re implications for, I think, the cultural landscape and to the extent to which you're breaking out of the bubble of the world that you know. It's what the author Eli Pariser calls the filter bubble. You're just getting served up what you want to see. And I think that is inherently dangerous. And It's I the family it's, in Fahrenheit yeah. 451. <laughs> yeah. The script is delivered to you, and you think that you're a character mm. in the drama, but in fact it's predetermined what you should say. You're, so, you know. so can I interject, just quickly? So to repeat um, another quote from my son. I'm not interested in learning facts. There's Wikipedia for that. I'm interested in learning concepts. He's interested in concepts. When you approach a computer screen, when I approach a computer screen, I, I believe I am pre-programmed to look for information. I'm there to find answers and, and look for facts. You go to the Kafka's Wound essay, you will get no answers there that you don't work out for yourself. Well, there's a lot of information there, but the answer you're looking for is the answer that you bring to it, not an answer that Will's giving you. You're not going to read 8,000 words and come up with the answer. No, but, but what know. I might hope is to arrest this progressive attenuation of attention span, which I believe, I, I, I really do believe is, is a real phenomenon amongst younger people and people, mm -hmm. and possibly even older people, who uh, feel themselves too acclimated to web-based reading and, informa and information gathering and even writing, is that maybe things like Kafka's Wound can produce something that will enhance attention span, will, will create something that, that actually 
because it is kind of long-form web content, you know, so yeah. it will just force people. I mean, I think we've got quite yeah. good figures on the amount of time well, people spend on it. Yeah, that's what I say. Peter has that. Yes, I mean, we've got to go to Peter in a moment, but actually, Will, the thing we didn't put on the site was a 16-hour real-time video <laughs> of Will writing the essay. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's as long-form as you can get. Um, yeah. Peter, would you like to say something? Hi, I should declare an interest. I, I'm Peter Manura. I'm the curator of the space, um, one of Bill's colleagues. I think to offer some real rays of hope. So the intention span is increasing. Comparing notes just beforehand, Helen's saying that your site has uh, an average user length of nine minutes. The space started off at one minute, 30 seconds, and is now up to seven minutes. Now, that's really significant. And before we come back to the specifics of, of this, this artwork, What's fascinating, if any of you have experienced the space, I do urge you to go to the space.org because what are some of the most successful things on it? All 37 of Shakespeare's plays in 37 different languages. Who would have predicted that long-form Shakespeare in all those challenging languages would be an enormous popular success? It's also something about reaching out because three weeks ago, when the play that was in Turkish went up, uh, and this is a site, by the way, which isn't promoted in any way, after London and Edinburgh, Istanbul became our biggest user of the site. It's still fourth, nearly six weeks on. I mean, these are extraordinary things. There are magical things happening. Talking of the magical, one of the things we haven't touched on at all is that this digital essay is beautiful. It's, when you come to it, it's a beautiful thing. The whole physicality of books, which is something we think we've lost, this gives an indication of what a beautiful, playful world might be like. And just third thought, rule of threes, which is that I believe, going right back to the application, because, you know, honestly, none of us really knew what we were doing at all. It was all an enormous experiment. Truth, truthfully, it was. Why did it work? It worked because of the rigour and the commitment of the team on the LRB. It worked because Will was involved in it, sparing his blushes, and it worked because there was a team, Ian, Bill, myself, who were equally rigorous and passionate. The delight of it is when worlds collide. It happened in an editorial and curated space. Therefore, the content that's grouped around it was all commissioned and committed to by people who are passionate. Therefore, there's an authenticity about the whole thing, which, as Helen says, does work within limits. And it's those limits that, again, linking back to Will, I think, offer, an, offer a kind of vision for the future. Also, if we did a different essay now, and let's hope we do, it would be completely different. And I think it would also spring from the work in, which, in the way that this does, in a way which has an authenticity which is completely different to just stuff you find on the web. And I think that's critically important. Thank you, Peter, very much. Uh, we one more question from the audience, and then I'm going to wind up with a... Um, this is a question for Will, and it's about control. We've touched on it to a certain extent. Um, when you produce a piece of fiction, there is one person involved. How would, it, how would you feel if uh, your publisher came to you and said, OK, the next novel you're going to write is going to be written in collaboration with 70 other people? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, early on in uh, my writing career, I, of course, 
fondly uh, nursed the idea that, that everything I wrote would be made into a, a major motion picture. Uh, and very quickly, when I came into contact with film people, I was working on a novel once. Uh, I, was working, I was commissioned to write a screenplay, and very, very early on in the screenwriting process, I became aware that uh, the person who was going to judge the quality of my screenplay uh, was wearing a sleeveless anorak, uh, and his main qualification was in accountancy. Uh, and this really put a serious uh, blockage into my creative process, and eventually I just turned the whole thing back into prose fiction. And, you know, essentially writing novels is quite clearly not a collaborative work, and it doesn't involve that kind of thing. So if... if that was to be the case, it would not clearly be a novel as is commonly understood. It seems to me that one of the most powerful things about, in particular the novel as a, uh, as a, uh, uh, a literary form, is that you and I meet alone uh, in this, this space. And I think that the solitude of the writer is, uh, you know, kind of paralleled by the solitude of the reader. And it's an extremely, and, you know, we are shorn of. Of, of, of sex, of class, of ethnicity, of anything, you know, age, and we meet each other unadorned in this realm. And it seems to me that that's a very, very pure and powerful thing that I wouldn't really want to mess around with. Thank you. I'll just say one more thing, because I think it is really, really important. It's slightly prosaic and banal, but it does bear upon all this centrally. And that is the question of cost and the question of the business model. The web is, we've had a lot of talk this evening about the quality of the reading experience and by implication the quality of the content. It is pretty much true to say that no content-based site on the internet can make money, any significant amount of money. You cannot start a magazine on the internet and hope to live by it, even to the extent that you could have done simply printing a few little magazines and delivering them to shops on a bicycle. There is no business model for pure content-based sites on the internet. That has huge implications. And that comes together with the enthusiasm for collaboration, the enthusiasm for the public having access to interactivity and writing. When it comes together with the pressure, not least from the BBC, to loosen copyright laws so that Material should be accessible free. We are heading for a massive amateurization of writing. The cost of... I, I wonder if anybody here has any idea what it cost, it actually cost, to do this essay. If we put in all the costs <laughs> in kind, it would have come to somewhere near £100,000. If we had used a professional developer instead of Brunel University, it would have been a lot more for this one essay. Now you can see uh, the problems we're facing and I think we really have to think about that because um, there is a great deal of talk about the digital future and how wonderful it is and how it's going to uh, liberate everybody into creativity. The danger is that it will simply produce a desert. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.